0: If you've heard Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, it's just before the book of Zephaniah, yeah. Habakkuk chapter 3, I will read the whole of chapter 3 in a moment. Let's pray before we read God's word together. Heavenly Father, I think that every text in the Bible is inspired, is inerrant, is infallible, it is profitable. Yet what we recognize there are passages whose power and eloquence and majesty grip us in a particular way. And I pray and pray that Habakkuk 3 would be that for us. I'm not to to in the words, let alone capturing the glory and majesty, so I pray that you give me a humble heart, give me grace to preach with power, with might and authority, and that you would speak the word that we all need to hear, in Jesus' name, Amen. So Habakkuk 3, and I'll read the whole chapter, it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigeonoth, i said this before by the way, Shigeonoth, does that right? Shiki O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Haran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and the plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Tushin in affliction, the curtains of of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode with your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high Some of boos stood still in their place. And the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying bare the thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of of his warriors, who came like a whirling to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound, bottomless enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation, God the Lord is my strength, he makes my feet like the deer's, he makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with string instruments and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and anointed word. The Lord, the Lord rules, the Lord reigns and with Christ our solid rock we are safe brothers and sisters everywhere and at all times. We are safe. The prayer of Habakkuk 3 is the prayer that I need today and is the prayer we all need. In these days. This prayer, this wonderful prayer, Habakkuk 3 was composed by the prophet Habakkuk. In verse 1 he's speaking as a prophet on behalf of the people. Just as Moses had done, or David or Deborah, and we have several hints that this was not a private prayer, but this was a prayer that was written, composed for public worship. Sometimes, in the moment of the most exquisite pain, you explode and overflow with prayer. And sometimes, in the moments of greatest pain, confusion, uncertainty, the right thing to do is to reflect and write. I encourage that. If you wake in the night and you have a thought and you wonder about the times we're living in, write. Just journal, make a note of what the Lord is teaching you. This is what Habakkuk has done. In the moment of exquisite pain, in the moment of confusion and uncertainty, he wrote. And this isn't a prayer that came that just came forth from the moment, but he put this prayer together with great thoughts, Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk has done so, not only to express his heart, before the Lord, but to be a prayer that the whole community could join together with. And we see at the very beginning of the prayer that it's according to that difficult word Shili and now I'll tell you exactly what that means. I don't know, and nobody does, by the way, was it an instrument or a style? Was it a dance? And then you had Sila three times. I didn't say that, but in Habitat 3 there's Selah is three times. You see them in the Psalms. And I'll tell you what Sila means as well. I don't know. Nobody knows. It may have be been a pause, it may have be been a musical notation. But the point B is that it signified it was for corporate worship. And then there's another hint at the very end, that last line to the choir master with strings instruments. God's people were meant to sing this and pray it together. Habakkuk 3. It's a remarkable prayer. It's one of the most powerful, eloquent pieces of poetry, passage anywhere in the scriptures. I want us to look at it about look at it in three ways, just three ways. Number one, it is a remarkable request. Number two, it is a remarkable recompense. And number three, it is, there, are, there is a remarkable rejoicing. So it's a request, it's a recompense, and it's rejoicing. And it's all remarkable. So let's have a look at Habakkuk's remarkable request in verse two. This is what Habakkuk has learned. Remember what we've seen in just four weeks? Two complaints. And then five woes. Remember that? God will judge faithless Judah. That was the first complaint. All the way back in Habakkuk 1, verse 4. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And then the Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your days. You would not believe if told. And that verse 6 behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and nasty, hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to secure dwellings, to take dwellings that weren't their own. But in time, God judged Babylon, and that was the second complaint. When Habakkuk said, Lord, how do you look upon those who are more wicked than us? And in response, God says, "The just, the righteous, shall live by faith." That I haven't forgotten. And then last week we saw five woes that will come upon Babylon, wicked Babylon, for their wickedness. But at this moment in time, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed externally. But what has changed is Habakkuk's perspective. We haven't yet come. To the judgment that is coming on Babylon. In one sense, things are worse for Habakkuk than when he started all of this, when he started his complaints in chapter one. They seem worse, but he sees better. What an encouragement. Yeah. They seem worse, but he sees better. And that's what we see in verse 2. He's looking up, his posture is one of worship. He has composed this thinking of worship, thinking of the people worshipping. So he begins, O Lord. And that is what matters most. And as I said at bedtime, even this morning, changing these, what I was going to say. That's what matters most, that we direct our attention to the Lord God Almighty. One more swipe through your phone. Just three minutes on any news channel is enough to discourage you for a lifetime. And just when you thought things were getting better, there there is so much to discourage you every day. There's so much to frighten you every day. But Habakkuk, even though the situation hasn't gotten any better, he looks up. So how do we deal with uncertainty? How do we deal with uncertainty? We were just looking for a video this week in the UK, somewhere to go and stay just for a few days. There's nowhere left in the UK. Because everyone, everywhere, is now spending a few days away in the UK. So how do we deal with uncertainty? What do we need in these uncertain, difficult, confusing, frightening times, how do we cope, how do we deal with it. Just think about how the world deals with it first. The world deals with it in, a, in different ways. First of all with resignation. Whatever will be, will be. It is what it is. Or you're one of those people who gets as much information as possible, which by the way I don't know and it's as much information as possible, and that helps you have a sense of control. You're almost like an information junkie. You get as much information so you're in control, and there is value in learning and listening. Or perhaps you're the opposite, and you want to avoid any information at all. Or Or maybe you just give yourself a bit of a pep talk. Everything will work out in the end. It will all be okay. Or maybe you deal with it as the majority of our fellow citizens do, and that scream and shout at anybody you come across. You scream and shout at anybody, whether it be verbally or on social media. As Christians, we must be different. As Christians, we must be different. And while there may be elements of all of those things, minus the end, we know that what is the most important thing to do is to look up. Now that sounds cliche, it's not, it sounds trite, it is not, but it is true, because sometimes you can't think your way out of it, you have to look up. You can't cry your way out of it, the balm comes, the healing comes, the hope comes, not because anything has changed in the circumstance, but your gaze has changed from earth to heaven. And notice two things he acknowledges here. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In other words, Habakkuk says, Lord, you are the one I need to hear from, and you are the one I need to fear. Mary says, just very sensitively and sympathetically, the thing that we need to fear is not the 10,000 voices telling us what we need to fear. But we need to fear the Lord. There are a thousand voices you could listen to. There are 10,000 things that could make you afraid today. Habakkuk says, I have heard from you, and you are the only one I should fear. And then he makes this remarkable request. You see the series of petitions Habakkuk makes. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In the midst of the years means in the midst of these years of judgment, or perhaps particularly the time between the punishment that they will receive and the vindication that is coming. Revive your work, O Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you still believe that God saves sins? That he humbles the proud? Do you still believe that God can heal the broken? We are a living testimony that God saves sinners. That God can heal the broken. He can forgive the wayward. Do you still believe that God can change people's minds? That God can change people's hearts? Do you still believe that we worship the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Then we, If so, if that is true, then we pray in the midst of years, O oh Lord, revive your work again. Do your work alone. Come visit us. Come visit us in this church. Come visit us in this nation with your great power. Habakkuk prays for revival. He prays for revelation. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, reveal it. Make your work known. Show more of yourself and your power. Have a good praise for revival. Have a good praise for revelation. Have a good praise for remembrance. In wrath remember mercy. Treat us not as our sins deserve. If you want to know how to pray these days, why not learn from verse 2? And just pray each day, O Lord, revive your work. O Lord, reveal your word. O Lord, in wrath remember mercy. What a great prayer. Pray for revival. Pray that the Lord's work would be revealed and pray that in wrath he would remember mercy. It's easy to think that the great movers and shakers of history I hesitate to say this, the presidents and the prime ministers, the politicians, maybe even the preachers. But who is to say that it's not that army of unseen men and women on their knees, night after night, day after day, praying, pleading, interceding to God to reveal himself and to show mercy? I always remember the story I heard about someone who went to the Met Tab when Spurgeon was the preacher, and they bumped into this guy on the, on, on the way in, and uh, you, know, you know they said, you know we wanted, you know, we wanted to come, we wanted to come and hear Charles Spurgeon preach, and then the man said, let me show you something because the service was about to start, and he took them down to a room in the church, and I think there were hundreds of people praying praying during the service and this man said that's the ageing room of the church and that man was Charles Spurgeon they They didn't know it at the time so what is happening in history can be God uses the prayers of his people the prayers of his people the unseen the unheard the untrumpeted the prayers of his people It is a remarkable request to have a good mate. Revival, we see the history of the church, comes not in times of prosperity, but adversity. Are you on your knees? praying that God would use this adversity to work a mighty work of revival. Revive. Again, we need wise and godly politicians. We need responsible journalists and pundits. We need fair and intelligent scientists and academics. We need experts in law and in criminal justice. But what we need most is that God Almighty be merciful to us and to revive his work again. That's what we need most. It's a remarkable request from Habakkuk. The bulk of the prayer though, is taken up with the second point, the remarkable recompense. A recompense means back a return in kind. We have a detailed explanation, drawing on Israel's past, about what will be Israel's future. How God will bring a recompense on the enemies of God and judge them. The theme is judgment upon the enemies of God and salvation for God's people. One thing just to bear in mind, God is not mocked. God is not mocked. Every day, people think that they're getting away with mocking God. They're not, because God is not marked. And the theme is judgment upon the enemies of God and salvation for God's people. The mighty acts in verses 3 through 15 are retold using elements of Israel's history. I love that. That's why I love to spend so much time in the Exodus, by the way, because that's our history too. That's our history. And there are two main sections here in this second section of Remarkable Recompense. And they're distinguished by third person and then second person. Verses 3 through 7, Habakkuk refers to God in the third person. So he, him, his. And then it switches in verse 8 to you and your second person. So the theme in the first half, verses 3 to 7, is the splendour of God. Teman, Mount Paran, verse 3, refers to the southern boundary of Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land. Teman was in the southern part of the desert, and Mount Paran was between Egypt and Sinai. So it's a reference to God leading his people out of slavery in Egypt through the Sinai peninsula, through the desert to the promised land. And most of the imagery here comes from the Exodus motif. verses three and four, speak about the glory appearing on Mount Sinai. What we know as a Theophany, God's appearing, His splendor covered the heavens, brightness like light, rays flashed from his hand. In Exodus 19, Mount Sinai quaked, thunder and lightning, loud peals of thunder, echoed. From the mountain. He delivered his people, verse 5, as with plagues and with pestilence. His worthy, everlasting, mighty ways. Do you see what's happening? These problems, these people, these massive mountains of men and nations, God bestrides them like a colossus, tosses them as if they were the sand on the beach. Their eternal mountains were scattered; their everlasting hills sank low. Whose ways are truly everlasting? It is the Lord's. In verse seven. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. After the death of Joshua, we read in Judges, as the people are in the Promised Land, among the among the first enemies to assault God's people were those from Cushan and you can read about that in Judges 3, in the Midianites in Judges 4. So it's a reference to God judging the former enemies of God's people. He shows himself in splendour, covering the heavens. The earth is full of his praise and he marches across the earth to execute judgment on the unbelieving and the wicked. It is no difficult task for God. That's God's splendour. Then we see the second half in verse 8, the theme of his wrath. God works his might against the rivers, against the seas, as he parted the Red Sea. Verse 11, he made the sun and moon to stand still. A reference to Joshua, fighting at Gibeon against the five kings kings of the Amorites. And in order that the vindication and the victory would be complete, God makes the sun stand still, from one perspective, to stand still in the sky that the day might be prolonged and the victory might be had. He appointed his anointed one for salvation, verse 13. The anointed one would be a reference to Moses, David, Solomon, or even Silas, who would lead the people, though he was a pagan king, and would set the people free from Babylon. But what it means, most of all, is to look forward to the anointed one, to the Christ, the Messiah, who will work deliverance for his people. God trampled on his enemies, verse 15, like the horses of Israel can run through the Red Sea on dry ground. What's Habakkuk doing? Well, he's not getting lost, he's pulling image and image and image, story after story after story. From Israel's past, and to say, Do you believe the stories that have been told? And so he leads people to marvel at the splendour of God and the wrath that will come on God's enemies. In the striking language in verse 14 you pierce with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. They will be destroyed with their own weapons. The bigger they are, the harder they will fall. Like a general whose army turns against him. Like the leader who says to his followers, you ought to question your authority. And they turn around and question his authority. Or the celebrities and journalists who stoke the fire of the cancel culture today. And then they have a past mistake unearthed and suddenly they find themselves cancelled. It is turning their own weapons against them. Palmer Robertson in his commentary in Habakkuk says about this verse, Often God's people find themselves severely disturbed because they see no visible power as strong as their enemies. But the prophecy of Habakkuk encourages the faithful Pursue assume a strange perspective. They must look at the strength of the enemy as the very source for their own protection. For as God sovereignly raises up powers and brings them down again, he turns the strength of the enemy against itself. Do you believe that? That whenever you see the enemies of God's people, whenever you see injustice, unbelief, lies masquerading as truth, and it seems for all the world there is no power equal to the enemies of God, God has a way of turning their weapons against them. Pharaoh has Israel trapped against the Red Sea, remember? Surely, that would be the end. No, no, no. It was Pharaoh's and his army who were swallowed up by the sea. It wasn't Israel. It was Pharaoh and his army. Who prepared the gallows for Mordecai? Who Who hung on the gallows? Haman. Daniel's enemies, they devised a plot that whoever wouldn't pray To the king will be thrown into the lion's den. Who ended up being eaten by the lions? Daniel's enemies. You see, God builds the strength, the might and the devices of his enemies, only to turn the weapons against them. That which seemed to be invincible, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. It's a remarkable recompense. Just think about this prayer. There's a remarkable request. There is a remarkable recompense coming. Not only in Habakkuk's day, but in our day, against all who shake their fists at God and his ways and his word and his anointed. But finally, there is a remarkable rejoicing. And this is the most famous section in Habakkuk. In verse 16, he suddenly switches to I. He's moved from his and him to you and your, and now he's talking I. Habakkuk's response is given to the Lord's response. I hear, my body trembles, my lips quiver, my legs tremble. He dared to offer a complaint, not once but twice, to the Lord. And we've seen that it was earnest, it was a lament, it was a patient filled groan. But having received the response from the Lord two times, Habakkuk comes with a final response. Not to mount another complaint, but to be quiet and to wait, to wait, to wait. Isn't that the lesson that we need to learn? It may take weeping and lamenting, And righteous complaining to get there. But Habakkuk has got there. I will wait. I don't see how, but I believe. Brothers and sisters, I will wait. I don't see how, but I believe. In chapter 2 verse 4, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. And it's not an abstract faith. A set of theological principles we must believe, which is important, but it is concrete. Do you believe? Do you believe today? Do you believe that God sees and God knows? Do you believe that God will make everything right? That God will come to right the wrong and to judge those who are right the wrong in Israel. It is a specific faith for a specific time. God's Word is true and what is coming upon us will not be the end of the story. We must believe that, brothers and sisters, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of fear, frightening diagnosis, grief upon grief. You see, one thing we've been doing in the church recently because of lockdown is that we affirm the Apostle's Creed. We're not able to sin, we find other ways to express our faith. So it's great to say I affirm the Apostle's Creed, but bring all of that doctrine to the moment. Do you believe that whatever suffering, whatever fear you are facing, it is not the end of the story for the believer? Just as Habakkuk said, I will wait quietly. I will wait quietly. The Babylonians won't get the last word. They did not. And then in verse 17, he rattled through six different clauses of calamity. Moving and increasing severity. And this is not hypothetical. But this is what would befall them, what would come upon them, the figs. The figs are a delicacy, a sign of prosperity. John 1, at the end of John one I'll we're looking at, at um, Nathaniel, that's on this afternoon. It's a sign of prosperity for each person to dwell under his own fig tree. So this is some of the more finer things, the good stuff in life, but it gets more severe. The grapes, the fruit of the vine, no longer wine to drink where you could live on milk and water, but then no olives, no oil for cooking, no oil for lighting your lamps. And then the fields are empty, no grain, no wheat, no barley, no bread. And then the flocks are cut off, no sheep, no goats, where you get your clothing, where you get your milk, where you get your food, and finally, no cattle. Not only your meat, but then no more herds, nothing to till the soil, nothing to do the work. He's moving from disappointment, no fix, to inconvenience, to a change in life, to possible starvation, to exposure to the elements, and finally the end of the needs of economic production. It's a dire situation that heaven portrays. And then verse 18, yet I. Ah. You know what that reminds me of? Yet I, Ephesians 2 We were dead but God was rich in mercy. But God the great transition in Ephesians 2 We were dead but God did this. But God speaks to the objective work of the gospel Yet I Speaks to the subjective response of faith to the gospel. There may be no things. There may be no food. There may be no clothes. There may be no milk. There may be no production. There may be no hand sanitizer. There may be no toilet paper. Remember those days? Nothing to sustain us. Yet I. Yet I will rejoice. This is the revolution. This is the rebellion worth having. A rebellion of joy. And in the midst of the suffering, yet I will bound around the rocks like a deer. I will scamper around the mountains like a deer. Don't go and try it, by the way, because Keswick Mountain Rescue don't want people scampering around the rocks right now. But it's in our heart a rebellion of joy. Well, how can he rejoice? Because he has seen the God of present glory. Brothers and sisters, far too many people who say they're Christian live as if God doesn't exist. Do you you see the mighty acts of salvation? Do you believe? Do you believe that God really exists? We're not just speaking in the wind. I'm not not, not doing this for the pleasure of hearing my own and I don't like it very much. We're not gathering because we just like to be together we're praying to god and we're crying that he would hear us and we know him and his word and through the lord jesus christ do you believe have you ever come to see do you know something of this god of present glory that's why abaca can rejoice He has seen the God of present glory and he trusts the God of future grace. Brothers and sisters, there it We've seen the God of glory and we trust the God for future grace. He has an expectation of life after the last enemy has come and gone. It may not be full-blown resurrection, but it is the same. When the last enemy has come and gone, When the last enemy, the last Babylon has done its worst, yet I will rejoice because God is my strength and my salvation. And if how could believe that, how much more we should, this side of the cross. We have seen the world and the devil do its worst, absolute worst on Good Friday. No greater act of injustice has ever been perpetuated in the history of humankind than the crucifixion of the Son of Man, and He could not stay dead. Death did not have the final word over Christ, and death will not have the final word over us if we believe in Him. The movement in this book is simply amazing. When you consider that Habakkuk's predicament has gone from bad to worse. We start at chapter 1 and it was bad. We go to chapter 3 and it is probably undeniably worse. That is the trajectory of his circumstance. From bad to worse. But not the trajectory of his spirit. His circumstances have gone from bad to worse. But his spirit has gone from complaint to joy. the famous line from Spurgeon, my joy has been put out of the reach of my enemies. Would that the Lord would do that for you and me, to put your joy out of the reach of your circumstances or your enemies, whether they're earthly foes or unnamed enemies from the demonic realm, or simply death itself. The trajectory from bad to worse, the spirit of Habakkuk from complaint to joy because he has seen the Lord and he believes that death and destruction will not have the final word so he can rejoice may that be your portion as well brothers and sisters death will not have the final word we can rejoice because Christ is saviour and Christ is Lord. May the Lord bless the Word.